Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. I am very happy to welcome my friend Nick Gordon to the show. Nick is a music industry executive of nearly three decades and is also the owner of a small live music venue in the Catskills area of New York called Love Velma. Nick and I talk about our shared music industry experience and how important it's been to avoid or at least to be cautious about the elements of the industry that can often lead down a dark path. Uh, Nick advocates for what he likes to call ethical hedonism and I am 100% on board with that. Uh, So listen in to find out what that's about and... uh, Check out more of Nick's story, everybody. Here is Nick Gordon. Um, my name is Nick Gordon. Uh, I'm a music distribution executive and run a jazz club in the Catskills called Love Velma. And uh, I am a uh, human man of 48 years. <laughs> a human man of 48 years. So I'm going to lob you a softball to start. Mm-hmm. What brought you into the music business? Why did you decide that you wanted to work in this crazy place? Uh, it was the pretty much the first and only thing that I ever thought about doing. Uh, I started playing drums when I was 11, and uh, it quickly became a core part of my identity. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have started a band class in junior high school with a, an amazing band director called W. Rayford Johnson. And um, through through luck and his career evolving at the exact same time that my junior high into high school time was evolving, um, we were together for six years. He is my band director and me as a, as a drummer and musician. Um, and um, he got to know me really well and... Um, for for reasons I've always considered whether or not he was telling me that I didn't have what it took to be a professional drummer or whether or not he just really believed in me as a potential business person, he encouraged me to um, think about a career in the in the music business. And um and it he said he planted a seed and um and it gave me a direction and um and I just went straight at it. And here you are all, all this time later. And I don't know what an outsider's perspective of the music industry is because I have not been an outsider in a very long time. 
Yeah. Uh, I, we, you and I have been in the business about the same length of time. Mm-hmm. Is, and we've gone from cassettes to CDs to yeah, iTunes to streaming to vinyl. You know, uh, there have been so many iterations of the music industry that have come and gone over the past three decades. What keeps you going? I still really like music a lot. Um, That's important. And um, I still identify as a drummer. And I really love the business. I love its quirkiness and evolutions. I love its turbulence. Um, it frustrates me in a way that inspires me. And, uh, and I, it's been really good to me exceedingly good to me and it's now you know in my 28th year of doing it for a living um you know i'm i'm now in this great position where i can really help people both mentoring people in the business and you know with my with my club um i can host and nurture artists and allow them to play and give them a place to play in the catskills and um so that's really like inspired me in a new way is just trying to help artists in a way that I never have be able I never never been able to have done so in the past and um and uh you know I uh there's lots of things that I have thought about doing over the years but they're never too far away from music or working with musicians or trying to build tools to help artists whether they're visual artists or musicians or what have you and um I don't have any other job skills frankly I feel like most of our job skills are pretty transferable, but I'm not going to put that to the test. What brought you up to the Catskills? Because we were just talking before we went live. Uh, you lived in Brooklyn for a number of years. Yep. And, you know, the music industry largely is in New York or L.A. or Nashville or one of those three places, pretty much. Yep. Uh, so wh- why the move to the Catskills? Yeah, so I had been looking for for years. Um, I had been going upstate New York just for fun, and I'm originally from the Midwest, and um, I I very much have a have a split city rural kind of pull. Um, and I when I started going up to the Catskills just for fun on weekends and stuff, um, I just loved it, and I saw this incredible region that um, had just been left abandoned in a sense and uh, just an incredible place of potential opportunity and a really beautiful place and um and as i got older and a little bit more tired of new york and ready for you know ready to augment my new york lifestyle um i had been saving money and um you know it came down to you know when i had the opportunity to potentially buy real estate it was a studio apartment in bushwick for a house in the Catskills. And um, it wasn't that hard of a decision, you know? <laughs> so I started looking around and um, and for years I looked. Um, and then in 2019, I was really serious about it. And, um, and the day that I went to look at houses, the first one I looked at was my dream house that I now talk to you from. So you were in a pandemic refugee. No, I was not. I had uh, I closed on the house December of 2019 in the lucky and most fortuitous um, thing that has ever occurred in my life. Somebody yep. was smiling on you there. They certainly were. <laughs> what about it makes it your dream house? 
Uh, it's a it's a mid century modern time capsule. Um, it's a it's a really sweet pad, kind of out of like the Brady Bunch or Mad Men, and um, that's always been my era, both you know artistically and aesthetically. Um, and um, it for all these absolutely bizarre reasons, it was priced really inexpensively because it was in a area that was not desirable at that time. Four months later, it became very desirable, and um, the house needed a lot of work, and and a bunch of other things occurred that were just serendipitously unreal. And um, so um, the house is built for entertaining, and it's built for people, and it has a 2,200-square-foot rumpus room in the basement, of which I've turned into a, a jazz and cabaret club. That is three times the size of my apartment. <laughs> Holy yeah. shit. Wow. It's a, it's a, it is a crazy, crazy house. And the joke is, is that I was looking for a little cute little A-frame for me and my cat, you know? And um, and I ended up with a 4,200-square-foot mid-century modern retreat with a jazz club in the basement. <laughs> and sometimes when good fortune and opportunity meets you on the road, you just have to jump in and drive. I respect that. Were you, when you got this space, were you immediately like, I'm going to turn this into a venue or? No, I didn't really know. It was so flabbergasting um, that when I, I saw this house in August and I had months before I closed on it and there was a lot of potential issues that were going to make the real estate transaction fall apart that could have happened at any juncture. And it was just such an unfathomably cool pad that um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I was sort of like adjusting to the opportunity for months before I actually closed on it. And then when I did, um, it was just a huge project. I knew I was going to have my friends over and have big parties because that's what I do. Um, and it wasn't until I was there by myself during the pandemic for a year and a half, basically, uh, working on it and fig figuring out what I was going to do with my life or what the the last people on earth were going to do with their lives. And, and I figured I might as well lean into uh, the concept of just kind of opening a, a jazz club. And here you are having opened a jazz club. It's true. Did you ever see yourself as a guy running a venue? I started to have some fantasies when I started to come up here. Um, so I've always been a big, like big band um, jazz fan, very much romancing sort of the, the like Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and the big bands of the of the era, and when I started to come up with the Catskills and you know the lore of the Catskills having these like Streisand or whatever, I I had a vision of of seeing that evolve to meet the the entertainment desires of the new New Yorker, um, and it was kind of just a stoned dream. It was a vision, um, so it was kind of there, and and as it's as it's congealed into my, there was a path to this, but no, I did not. My plan was never to run a venue. And despite that, I feel like I've done almost every job in the music industry. Venue owner has not been one of them. And, um, it now is. And, um, so I don't, I don't know. You know, sometimes doors open for you and you're not even sure what you're opening, I guess. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, you've mentioned already a couple of times that you 
you love throwing parties, you have this venue, your community seems to be something that is really, really important to you. Has that always been the case? Is that something that's changed as you've gotten older? No, I think it's always been the case. Um, you know, I think like one of the, the path of me sort of personally is um, I've always been seeking my community. And, um, and when I first started in the music industry um, and, you know, first started connecting with record labels and artists, the hang was always really important to me. And that bond that, that formed, um, you know, when, when I would meet a potential contact at a record label or a new artist, for me, it was about like building bridges and, and, you know, putting our heads together and figuring out how to, you know, build a cool scene around us. And that has just always like given me a, a warm sense of belonging. And, um, and, you know, I think that that's ultimately what I've always, you know, what I'm always looking for is just finding great people and surrounding myself with them. And so, and the, the community building aspect of it, um, I think that that part comes naturally to me in that I'm just like an organized party planner and I love to gather people and I think I'm good at creating a theme and sticking it to my friends and, and gathering people around it. And, and I, and I've, and I've merged that into all, each and every one of my jobs, I think has been about building community, whether it's internally among the company and the employees to create a, a more, a warmer sense of mission um, or whether it's been um, at, at different jobs when I've been building community around a, a pastime or a you know even a product or or whatever, um, yeah, building building community is what it's all about for me. Just you saying that has led me off in like four different directions. I'm going to try to make sense of the questions that are forming in my head. Um, the this isn't specific to the music industry. Corporations uh, tend to like to refer to themselves as a community or a family. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, on one hand, I get it. And on the other hand, it's kind of like, well, I, I, I appreciate what you're trying to put out there, but that's yes. not really what a lot of folks that work for you are feeling. Correct. Um, what is it? that makes the way that you operate different. Yeah. Well, first of all, I totally agree with you over as my careers progressed and I've differentiated between jobs and companies and community. And there is a difference. Um, the, like when companies say like, you know, uh, it's our family of employees, I've really grown to disdain that concept <laughs> because, um, it's not a family, it's a job. And, um, and you can feel a sense of community and warmth and friendship with the people you work with, even the people you work for. But um, companies are there to, to perform a service and to make money. And ultimately, a company will fire you. <laughs> They'll do what is, whatever is in their best interest. And, um, you know, you can't get fired from a family, really, you know. Um, but um, the, I think the difference for me has been it's about nurturing people and nurturing people's dreams and what they're passionate about. And, um, I think the, the older version of the music industry, I think 
it was a little bit more um, informal, and in then in that informality came some really warm and sometimes weird <laughs> moments, but uh, but definitely more kind of that punk rock um, ethos that I always tried to bring to companies that I work for, just in the sense of providing a larger mission and a feeling of support for the people. Um, and yeah, certainly as I became a boss of folks and started managing people, I did become aware of the, the nuance there. Um, but for example, now my community is, you know, I'm building a community of people who love live music and who come to this private social club that I run to enjoy music. And it really is a community and they're, you know, we're all there sharing in something together and there's not a, there's not a hierarchical, um, you know, um, we, it truly is a community of people who like each other and, you know, um, but yeah, within companies, building community is, 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 it is a, a touchier, um, concept that I think when, when done with the right intent, um, can still really nurture people and sometimes demystify the difference between community, coworker, and employees in a way that can create some balance for people so that they can believe in the mission of the company. They can feel really warm with the people they work with or form lifelong friendships in some cases. That feeling and those friendships with work situations, which um, you know, it is a business. Right. Right. Absolutely. Totally get that. I, I'm going to try to make a long-winded analogy here, and I'm going to ask you to join me on this journey mm-hmm. as I'm going to make a comparison uh, to uh, to the music industry in New York City. Okay. I grew up in New York City, hmm. and there is a part of me that is nostalgic for a New York City that existed 25 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And I am a little bit nostalgic for it, despite the fact that New York City in the 90s was toxic as hell. Yeah. And it's changed now. And I think it's changed for the better in some cases. It's much safer. Mm-hmm. Um. But there's an element that's missing that uh, that I feel a little bit nostalgic for. Music industry in 2023 is not the same as it was in 1995 or 2000 or 2010. Right. That said, there are lots of things that were toxic about the music industry back then sure. that are still in existence to an extent, but are largely being phased out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing uh, is the over the element of overindulgence. Yes. Um, and another thing is the uh, ridiculous and incredible amount of misogyny. One hundred percent. And kind of just wondering where you stand on that, because you know it. it you, you know, twenty eight years, so that puts us at nineteen ninety five. Nineteen ninety five, the music industry was a much different place than it is now. People are more aware of treating people with respect and dignity and 
maybe not leaning so hard on the nose candy and the alcohol? How do you see like the evolution of all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's been a really wild ride, Mike. <laughs> um, it's changed so much. And um, it's, it's I, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that. Um, I... I didn't get into the music industry for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but I didn't not get into the music industry for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know? Um, and you know, what I mean, I started my career in the Midwest, um, and I started to travel to LA and New York in the mid, mid to late 90s, and um, which was a confluence of the music industry and the original dot-com 1.0. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found when I moved to New York and started working at Caroline um, in the early 2000s, and I feel like the office at Caroline was the last rock and roll office situation that I have. Oh. But that Caroline office on 29th Street, um, where I met some of my best friends in the world still, um, when we were all making real real shit money um (laughs) but people smoked cigarettes in there there was bong hits in the conference room there was there was definitely blow at parties there it was a fucking party house you know and there was people hooking up many of whom actually got married you know but there were hookups i i was not one of them i don't i don't recall um but they're lost yeah they're lost um it was wild. And yeah, as I've progressed, I've thought about that a lot where I, I still love elements of that feeling because there, there were moments in those parties and, and in the part of the business in which it was when I was most indulging, um, there was real productive sessions and hangs that weren't about the drugs. It was about the hangs, but the drugs were there too. Um, but where, you know, people from different labels and, you know, all uh, retailers and managers and artists were all in the same room, you know, um, hanging out and talking shit and, you know, really forming deep relationships and embracing some of the informality and, and the, the, the strength of friendships that can come through the informality of partying that form a bond that is quite unique, you know, and that is hard to duplicate um, elsewhere, I think. Um, but, you know, when, in, when all of the good things were happening, when it was all about friends and hugs and hanging and getting to know people and partying hard for sure, yeah, but like also just bonding over music and bonding over the party and the, the night, those moments were some of the best moments of my life and career. And, but yeah, over the years, I started to see um, the toxicity in that. And I saw a lot of people, not my friends, but people on the peripherals of those party scenes get outed for doing really bad stuff. Generally men doing you know bad stuff or just predatory stuff around women or artists. And you know all that really, really creepy shit. Um, and yeah, I see how that 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 same informality, that same party atmosphere, can also be abused. And um, the the piece that I've 
grown into as a an, as an adult who for many many years my job and my life outside of my job were very difficult to separate i was working a ton i was going out to work shows four or five nights a week i was single in new york i was trying to find love and lust and everything <laughs> and um and i i've always had the presence of mind to know that um, dating people you work with is not a great idea. And I have by and large and quite proudly avoided about 99% of any of the desires that I might've had or crushes that I had. Um, and I'm so glad that I did. Um, and I, and I tell my younger coworkers about these things that I've learned that, hey, you're going to be out at 1130 at night and you're going to meet the publicist for one of the bands and you're going to crush on them, you know? But just remember that, sure, it's your life too and you can form friendships, but you are there as a professional. And um, just remember that those those flirtations can be taken out of context so easily and, and you can make people feel um, uncomfortable so easily. Right. And especially in, you know, male to female situations when there's age differences or power or whatever, um, those situations, which maybe you feel like are really innocent flirting or whatever, can, can really set up a dynamic in that relationship that may be there for a long time or affect your professional relationship with that person or the band that you share together. And um, those can be really bad. And the best thing to do is just... Uh, not you can really be attracted to someone or feel that 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 spark, but man, if you just think about those people as humans and make sure they get home okay and and that they have a good night and and go go for the warm handshake sometimes over the awkward hug and you'll be so glad you did later on, you know. And um, I I think about that a lot for sure because there was a lot of late nights and just partying with people who are now I'm, I'm friends, I'm go to their weddings. But back then we were just 28 year old people fucked up at the Bowery ballroom at one thirty in the morning or at the basement of the Mercury lounge or whatever. And those were some weird ass places. Uh, but yeah, I do, I do think about the arc of that a lot. And my arc is a, is a human and getting to be better at that, which I've worked at, um, quite a bit. And, um, of course I, I think about where I was in those conversations and situations and everyone looks back at their twenties, I think sometimes and cringes a little bit, um, <laughs> or a lot or a lot, but, um, yeah, like, the arc of life is interesting. It sounds like you've got a pretty decent sense of discernment. I think so. I applaud you for that because look, again, just it, in this business, we're uh, confronted with so many different types of opportunities and people, and it's not, you know, it's not a car salesman conference, right? You're at a club, music is playing, there's a band on stage, you know, everybody's sweaty and on endorphins, managers and there's publicists, people are drunk or stoned or whatever it is, and there are so many opportunities. And then, you know, if going back to the car salesperson analogy, like if I'm the president of the car company, 
I'm not a big deal. But if I'm a mid-level person at a record label, yeah, that can get you laid. Yeah. So it is super important to be able to use discernment in those situations. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people that don't or didn't. Yeah. Um, you know, some of them are now paying the price for that. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I, as a net industry, we, we uh, have learned our lesson, even though there are still probably some people who haven't. I think we have. I think a lot of industry has industries have, and you know, part of how the music industry has evolved with the generations, um, where you know, when technologists entered the business, um, that sort of changed the dynamic. I used to joke that, um, you know, it used to be that like just being the lead singer of a really successful rock band, you know qualified you to be head of a of a major corporation <laughs> and um and the, and when technologists came into the business people just got so much more smarter and the and the businesses became more sophisticated um and i think the the business kind of like turned the music business turned into media and and the generations that came after us didn't have that same they didn't they didn't cherish the thought of that older music industry that we started in in the same way and um at some point i learned that where i'm like oh they're not thinking about the community element of the music business in the same way that i do they're just here to because they love music or they are trying to get a job or work their job or whatever and and of course also like um as different people came into the business and um and g generations evolved um people changed and it wasn't the same environment for nurturing relationships and at some point i learned that i can try to like organize my employees into a, a you know a, a group of people that hang out and like whatever and, and and build that kind of community together but sometimes like some people just don't want to build community with their coworkers. they're like i'm fucking done working i'm going home now i don't care if there's cheese right you know like i i can get my own cheese and you're like all right cool you seem like someone who is fairly well adjusted for someone who has worked in the business for so long happy and and, and well adjusted um, and I, it's always interesting when I interview someone and I'm like, oh, you're, you're fairly not a dark person. Yeah. I, you know, it's been a path through learning, becoming more self-aware years of therapy and, um, it, listen, I've always been someone who loves to party. Um, and I'm always someone who is like trying to get better at being me. You know, and part of that is like comes with, you know, depression and anxiety and like all kinds of stuff that I, you know, that I, I wouldn't say struggle with, but definitely deal with. And yeah, like trying to, trying to be well adjusted and the best version of myself possible is, you know, something that I work really, really hard on and it's a pathway and, you know, I don't always feel like I'm there, um, but I try. And yeah, I think that. Um, whether it's because I'm just neurotic or um, or I 
I am sort of a solo act in a sense. Um, I do try to work on myself a lot and try to em- embrace joy. And um, I've been so lucky and so fortunate. And um, and it's a it's a gift. And um, trying to figure out how to make yourself happy, um, even when you look around and there's absolutely no reason not to be happy. Those things don't always line up. And um, so, yeah, that's something that I'm always working on and trying to figure out different and more healthy ways to embrace that. But yeah, I I think I'm reasonably well adjusted. Reading through your notes, one phrase stuck out to me. And I know why, because it just conjured up an image in my head. Um, but I don't know that anyone's really discussed this uh, on this podcast before, and it is ethical hedonism. Yeah. And what does that mean for you? Yeah, well, um, I have always embraced the the pleasures of life, you know, and um, I think that the the most simple pleasures are what defines us as humans, you know, just love and um, and happiness and embracing, you know, good food, good wine, good people, good sex, good, you know, good weed, all those things. Those and are all good things. Those are all good things. Yeah. And and trying to embrace those things um, you know, in a in a healthy way that is aligned with my age, you know, and whatever. Um, what does that even mean? Though? Of course, d- doing that and and enjoying life and all those things in a way that is compassionate and um and is ethical and um, empathic is the way that everyone has a good time, you know? And trying to provide a environment of joy is, I think, something that is one of my callings, you know? I think that a lot of people do not look for the joy in life and they get really bogged down in the, in the crap and life is really short. And I lost my sister a couple of years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you, brother. Um, but it's so easy to be consumed with negativity and with the, the shoulds and the, all, all those things. And, I keep being led or leading myself down a road where it's just like, you know what? The things that I love and love to do are actually all pretty healthy. And and fuck, I'm just going to embrace those things and try to share them with other people. And uh, sometimes part of party planning and promoting for me now is creating a space that is about joy and is about some unexpected joy that sometimes I feel as adults, we stop looking for. That's real. Yeah. And (laughs) um, I think especially coming out of the pandemic, I'm 48. um, People and, you know, people who are in that kind of midlife period, um, a a lot of people find themselves just wondering what life is about and where the happiness is that we were all promised you were never promised happiness, you know? Um, but you're, you're responsible for building it for yourself. Um, 
But I think just creating zones where ethical hedonism or just a joy or um, just an exchange of the potential for joy is a really important thing for people to have access to. And um, so that's, that's one of the focuses of my venue is just creating that space. I, you know, I agree with you. You know, you're, you're 48, I'm 47. Uh, you know, we're, we're at similar places, I think, in life where, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm presuming you're single. I Correct me if I I'm wrong. Yep. Okay. So we're single guys in our mid to late 40s mm-hmm. hitting like an inflection point in life where it's like, shit, what are we going to do with the time that we have remaining that is going to make us happiest? Yeah. And make the people around us happiest. And I think so many people hit that point in life and it's like, oh, well, shit, what the hell do we do now? We're stuck in this, whatever, dead-end job, dead-end family, dead-end situation. Um, we're e- we either got to make some serious adjustments to get our shit together, or we need to accept where we are and kind of mm-hmm. go from there. Um, but there is something about the age stage that we're both at that I think for not just you and me, but for a lot of people, just causes a a lot of inflection. Yeah, and introspection. Yeah, like I said, I sort of identify as a solo act in a lot of ways. You know, I I desire to find love and the ultimate kind of love um, with another person. But um, I do find myself quite happy as a single person. Um, or as someone without like a committed live-in partner. Um, and you know, it's, it's not always easy. And of course, you know, the, you know, grass is always greener and, you know, there's like so many trigger words in our culture, like being what, like still single, you know, as if like, as if like you're supposed to be trying to get unsingle or something, you know, as a life pursuit, um, and, you know, going through these phases where I've, you know, been in a relationship, it's been good, then it goes bad, and I get out of it, and I go through this period of incredible elation where I'm just like, fuck, I love this feeling of being <laughs> on my own where I'm so inspired and I can do whatever I want and, and, and be like, just have un, un, um, unstopped or uncompromised um, um, time to focus on whatever the fuck I want to do. And, um, and largely I think it's been pretty good. And, um, I see my friends coming out of marriages and seeing, um, my friends whose spouses have passed away in their forties and seeing the reality of life come around where, um, where my, my other friends in their forties have become single again or whatever. And they're, they start to see the some of the magic that is there um, is it's really interesting. And yeah, I think it is an inflection point is like, I start to see 50 over the horizon and where it's like, okay, I still believe that you are healthiest when you are happiest. And it is everyone's job to find what makes them happy. And, um, in in a way that it also takes into consideration responsibilities and commitments you've made, whether you've had children or whatever, um, then you're 
somewhat responsible for providing a pathway for those little people you've bred. Brought into um, the world, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I see it a lot upstate here where a, a lot of people have moved during the pandemic and are now rebuilding their lives um, in the, the version of which is going to make them happy in their current stage in life, you know? And I think that that is a, a gift that I've identified and experienced living up here and moving out of the city where I was not always in a place where I was setting myself up for happiness. You know, I felt uh, some of New York city and my lifestyle there was not always like leaning into these, the simplest pleasures in life that make me happy, like nature and space and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is an interesting thing for sure. Interesting time of life. Those things are not in abundance in New York City. No, they're not. You have to really have to seek them out. Um, and um, we know that living in New York, the your job of of blacking out distractions so that you can focus on the things that you actually want to do um, is it's hard because you have to plan it. You have to leave your apartment and go to the park. You have to really focus on making an agenda around seeking the things that are going to make you happy, whether it's taking a class or leaving your house and taking the subway and going to the botanic gardens <laughs> or whatever. And sometimes you're like, I don't want to fucking get on the subway right now. I just want to relax, but I don't have an outdoor space in my apartment. So I guess I'm sitting here in my living room or I'm sitting on the stoop and then the sirens come by or whatever. And it breaks your piece up. It breaks your piece up. So. I, I am a little envious, I must say, of A, the fact that you have the space and um, peace that I, I think I desire. Mm -hmm. To some extent, I, I, I go back and forth. I love New York City. I've lived here almost my whole life. Um, I have a life here. I have a community here. It's great. But when I'm sitting in my living room sometimes the last three or four nights and I'm hearing entire conversations taking place outside my apartment and I want peace and quiet that can't be had. Yeah. You know, um, at the same time, if I was away from it permanently, I would miss it. So I, maybe I don't know what I want or I want some combination of them. So I got to ask, how did you name your venue? Right. So um, the name of the venue is Love Velma, and um, um, she is partly fictional, fictionalized, but um, the matriarch of the house in the 70s, based on the, deed, the name on the deed, um, the people who lived here in the 70s, um, his name was Dr. Aphrodisio. First name was Aphrodisio. Doctor was in doctor. Dr. Aphrodisio. And his wife's name was Vilma. And um, I know this only from the from the deed and from stories from people who lived here in the seventies. Um, and um, so, with a name like Doctor Aphrodisio and, and Vilma, um, it conjures up certain images of you people sure who are. You're who, not living in Plato's retreat. 
it's like, well, it, uh, they, they have lore. They have local lore where they might have been swingers. They definitely had lots of parties. And uh, so there, there's a bit of uh, allure and lore around them. And um, of course, I've, you know, I've created characters out of these, you know, poor, innocent people who made one of these things. Um, and um, so I named the venue uh, as a tribute to the matriarch of the house in the seventies. Um, and so it's like, whatever I'm doing, if it's bringing amazing funk to the venue, I'm presenting this amazing show, love Velma, you know, and, um, it's worked, you know, feels good. I was wondering if it was a Scooby-Doo reference. It was not, it's not a Scooby-Doo reference. So I did enjoy Scooby-Doo very much as a kid. <laughs> and, I mean, I kind of know what is your goal. Your goal is to foster community, but what is your growth plan? What What do you think two to three years from now is your ideal in terms of the community building you're trying to do? Mm -hmm. Well, it's twofold, I think. Um, one is I'm trying to build a world-class venue in the Catskills, um, and we really need it. And um, I'm a big fan of jazz and world music and drums and drummers and um, funk and soul and, and, um, and I'm trying to create a venue. I'm not trying, I have created a venue, um, that supports that kind of music and allows people up here to see it. And part of what I'm doing is trying to expose people who think that they don't like jazz to really good music through storytelling and marketing and fun and, and um, the allure of adult debauchery. Um, and then when they get here, it's like, psych! It's like a, it's a jazz quartet, you know? Um, but then in, halfway in the middle, they're like, this is great. Yeah. They're like, maybe I do love jazz. It's like, yeah, of course you do. It's awesome. So Why wouldn't people love jazz? A lot of people get things in their head about what jazz is and that they don't like it, you know? Um, huh. Because jazz is a huge huge word and a huge overarching genre and some of it sucks like all kinds of music you know um and um so some people think they don't like jazz or they've never been plopped down at the village vanguard with a really great show and don't even understand what it is that i love so much about it um but but part of my goal has been to expose and create a modern neoclassical stuff um but um really trying to build fun and storytelling around the events. Um, and then for some people, they're going to a destination concert. They know what it is and they know what to expect and they're psyched about it. And they can enjoy the venue as uh, an envelope for that concert experience. Other people have no idea what the music's going to be like. And they come because they know that Love Velma is a really good party and the music's always going to be good. And they trust my taste and judgment, um, of which I am so thankful for that. And, um, and they're coming and they're being exposed to these incredible, um, emerging, you know, jazz artists, um, from, from now all, all around the world. And so that's part of what I'm doing, I think, is just trying to create a really good party, um, that features really important music that needs to be preserved and if and it needs to be preserved in a very specific environment for it to, um, to thrive. And the very happy accident of this space 
is it sounds really, really good. And it's a really great room for jazz. Um, so people are in this immersive experience in a room that's about 80 cap room, um, which to me is the perfect size. Um, and they're experiencing world-class live music, sometimes by accident, without knowing what they were going to experience. And when that hits you over the head, when you're on the dance floor and you see somebody and you just didn't even, so a lot of these people had no idea what they were going to experience when they came here. And they end up seeing just some incredible music and then then they're in, you know? Nice. And is your goal to get repeat people who just kind of are living the Love Velma lifestyle? Yeah, and, and that we do have a lot of regulars. It is a private social club is how it's structured from a legal standpoint. And yeah, the focus is on return membership. Um, and we do have um, a lot of the people who come, come a lot. And so, yeah, that is the goal. Because up here in the Catskills, um, there's not a million things to do. There's like 10 things to do. <laughs> Or depending on the, the day of the week, three things. So creating a scene that uh, a regular place that you can go to, or, or at least once or twice a month, and just see your friends and see great music. And that is what I'm trying to build. Some people come once or they're tourists or whatever. But yeah, I, I do consider the re- repeat visitors as, as part of my curation process. You're building a community. Yeah. So. What is the number one ingredient needed to create a great party? A party that people are going to remember forever and ever. Uh, if you could distill it down to one or two things that, that the planner needs to do. Mm-hmm. You need to take people out of their normal routine. So that means sometimes a theme or luring people to a special place. I think that's what rave culture did really well. And hmm. there needs to be a, a bit of, uh, you, you should not know what to expect completely. And you need to get people to dress up a little bit and to um, and to go to a place knowing that it is an, an somewhat or much more elevated place than what they would normally go to. It is not the bar and grill. You know, they're not going to watch the game. They're going to a special, a special place um, where magic happens. You know, and that's that's one of the things is you got to create a really cool destination that feels good and is special and is different than what's at your house or what's at the the bar or whatever. You know, and that's what private parties can do really well. And um, and something I lean into a lot. I encourage people to get dressed up. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I like to say in our invitations is that you can never be overdressed for La Velma and coming out of the pandemic when people had not worn clothes, you know, for a long time, um, especially the ladies, um, came in gowns and people were going really big, you know, and I was really leaning into kind of that studio 54 type of a you know, this is what to expect and come correct. And I was publishing style guides and, and, and dropping in like, um, you know, wardrobe, uh, mood board 
photos during the week and giving people a sense of what they could wear and what they should be wearing. And, you know, Mike, in some cases I was, in fact, trying to give the, um, how you say, uh, the straight men, um, a little bit of a, um, of a encouragement, a little bit of a, a destination to strive for because they do need a little bit of help. They, they need sometimes a little bit of help to, um, to get their outfits straight, you know? I mean, if, you know, if your MO is a flannel and jeans and sneakers and boots, and sometimes you gotta, you might need a little push to kind of get yourself up there. And I, you know, it's interesting to me also, you know, we're talking about, we talk about being in the music industry for a long time. The idea of men's fashion has changed. I think straight men's fashion has mm-hmm. changed in a lot of ways too, where like, you know, if you were a straight guy 30 years ago, being interested in the way you dressed was considered a little bit gay. Yeah. Uh, and then there was the whole like metrosexual thing that happened like 15 or 20 years ago or whatever. Right. Um, that's what I was called. Been, you were called a metrosexual? Yeah, that's what I was called. I, I remember my sister calling me that. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I don't think that terminology is as prevalent now. I think it's okay for straight dudes or straight appearing dudes to be a little bit more experimental with regards yeah. to fashion. Yeah. You know, I, well, uh, I, I cracked a joke with a relative recently where I had my nails painted one day and she was like, why are you doing that? And I was like, well, my straight friends are, my straight dude friends are painting their nails. So I was like, I have no excuse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And um, I mean, at some point, not really not until my thirties did I actually like start figuring out how to dress myself. Um, and because uh, I grew up in the Midwest in the 90s, and it, I was just not thinking about it that much and not doing it very well. Um, but uh, yeah, I love that part. And I think that's where like evolving um, the blurring of gender in general and the larger sense of straight people and gay people hanging out more and straight dudes having gay friends where it's like, all right, um, I see what's going on here and I'm a hairy motherfucker. I, I could be, I could be pruning some things a little bit better. And I see what it looks like when you do that. Oh, you can shave that, you know? And, right. uh, I totally get what you're saying. And I agree. I mean, there's so much blurring of everything in reality. Yeah. Um, but you know, we stick ourselves in these very rigid roles of, of, of what you can be and what you can't be. Right. And it's right. Nice. I love that. And especially with, with younger generations, it's they're not even thinking about those gender roles in the same way. I mean, gender, that, I mean, that's a whole nother concept. But even the concept of gender now is just radically different. But it's different. Yeah. With respect to fashion, you know, living in New York and seeing it and, you know, I was a, doing a lot of photography and portraiture for a number of years. And I really started to get into like, really started to get into fashion, like in women's fashion and men's fashion. Um, and uh, now it's like, I, I really obsess about like, you know, finding cool clothes and seeing what my friends are wearing. And like, I love that. And I think that is like one of those like seeking joy pastimes is like figuring out what you feel good and sexy in and finding clothes like that and colors that make you feel a certain way on a certain day. That's a way to embrace joy in a way that I think as men, we were never like encouraged to do that. In, you have a in, uniform. 
women, I think, were in, in, in bad ways, too, where it's like, here are the, the clothes you should wear, maybe to appear sexy to the male gaze or whatever. But, you know, uh, considering fashion and style and those kinds of things are something that is bred into or, or not bred, but rather uh, culturalized into women for good and toxic ways. But we were even encouraged not to think that way because it is not productive for the madness in the 70s and 80s and 90s or whatever. 90s. I feel like it happened gradually as I as I um, as I grew and evolved in my New York life and uh, I kind of came into my own in my 30s I think and started to figure out what I felt best in and I started to pay attention to fashion a little bit more and I started trying things and um and sometimes I'd go out with friends. Sometimes I'd go out with my gay male friends. And they're, they're, I, I, was, I was hanging with a number of stylists in Ooh. my early 30s. I would, I would go to a hang, like a, pre, a pregame, you know, or before we we're going to go somewhere. And everyone would be getting styled. There'd be a wardrobe. Um, and I would be dressed, you know? And um, I was like, this is fucking great. And, um, and going, like going out feeling like, a different person because you're wearing something that fits you better or, or brings out something different in you and then going to dance or going to hang out and, and interacting with the world in a different, in, you know, in a different dressed version of yourself. I loved that feeling and I started to lean into it and become more and more comfortable with it over time. And, um, it's great. And like the first time I was like, I'm going to buy a fucking nice pair of boots or I'm going to spend some money and get the, the, the right vintage jacket I want or, or getting into like glasses is something that I started to get hard into. Um, and uh, now it's one of the things that brings me a lot of joy. That's where I was kind of going, because when I think of you uh, and the times that we've encountered one another, the first thing I think of is your glasses. Mm, yeah. You've got a trademark. Yeah. I, um, I, I do as a as a bald man. Um, the glasses are an important accessory, um, and uh, as as you well know, you know. Yes, I, um, we're we're bald bearded yeah. be, bearded bald men. Yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, I um, I started to go a little bit more eccentric and and push my comfort zones a little bit. And I've always been very much into like um like the old like uh, Lou Wasserman old Hollywood mogul look and um, trying to embrace um, some of those looks um, in a way that I felt comfortable doing. And um, these glasses definitely were ones that when I got them, I was like, oh, fuck, all right, I can do a lot of cool shit with these. <laughs> They're styling. They are. And also yeah. I've learned from having big glasses is you have a larger peripheral of, of vision and um, you get really addicted. Now when I put on smaller glasses, I'm like, man, this is a lot more limiting, you know? Maybe I need to uh, take a style tip from you and, and expand the size of my lenses. Expand this. It is a, it is pretty interesting. I mean, there is some, uh, some good um, science there, you know, that uh, <laughs> the more, the more field of vision that is in the correct um, optical uh, you know, measurement, the more you will be able to see. That is fair. I like seeing Go shit. Go figure that shit. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoy your podcasts and oh, I think what well, you're doing you, is important. And, um, 
I think men talking about men is is vital and 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 uh the more of these conversations that take place um the more that toxicity will be exposed and people who maybe are experiencing some of that um but they don't want to be is like when you can hear conversations that are different and that open you up to different ways of thinking um change can occur so i applaud what you're doing and um, I think I it's really important. That. And uh, I love that you're, you're with a focus on, you know, the, the creative industries. And uh, and uh, so I think what you're doing is really cool, man. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nick, for jumping on and sharing your story with me. I really appreciate you taking the time. I am hoping to get up to Love Velma soon. Uh, it's only a couple hours away from New York City, so um, maybe we'll make that happen sooner rather than later. Folks, if you would like to follow Love Velma online, please go to either uh, lovevelma.com, that is L-O-V-E-V-E-L-M-A.com, or you can follow them on Instagram at lovevelma underscore. Thanks again, Nick. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace <laughs>